Blog Talk Radio. Quiet, please. Welcome to Rex Sykes Movie Beat, Conversations with Filmmakers, where we discuss everything film and television here on Movie Beat. You're going to learn what to do and what not to do when it comes to making movies and TV. We will talk to everyone behind the scenes and in front of the camera, and I'll provide you with the guests and the information you're going to want to have, whether you're a filmmaker or a fan. And so now let's Go behind the scenes here at Movie Beat. My guest today returning is Mr. Sam Christensen. Sam uh, started as a casting director. He casts series like MASH and a lot of big movies. He uh, is now currently a a well-respected, well-renowned mentor, uh, brand and image guru, and consultant for actors, writers, filmmakers. Uh, He's someone you're definitely going to want to listen to. If this is your first time listening to Reg Sykes Movie Beat, or if you haven't heard Sam before, you're going to want to stay tuned. And uh, I'll be telling you more about him, and he'll be coming up live in just a few moments. Uh, The official website, by the way, the chat room is open. If you're listening live, you can join us in the chat room. The official website for Rex Sykes Movie Beat is R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S.com. That's the URL. It's RexSykes.com. It's my name. I'm your host. And uh, I'm glad to be with you. It's been a while. This summer has been crazy busy, and uh, I haven't done as many shows. We've put everybody on hold while uh, I'm directing a film and a, and a bunch of other things. So uh, I'm glad that you're with us today and that you're listening. If Again, if this is your first time listening, uh, all of these interviews are recorded live, and that's when you can join us in the chat room. And then they're archived at RexSykes.com in the interviews blog. You can go there, and you can search the blog, you can scroll through, and you can find all sorts of guests, everyone from executive producers to craft service and celebrity on-camera talent. Uh, you just go through and look and click on their link, read their biography and insider links to listen to the shows live or archived. All right? And so you're going to want to do that. Sam has appeared on this show four times before. This is the fifth time that he's come back. And so if you uh, you can always go back and listen to any of the other excellent four parts with Sam. His website is samchristensen.com. That's S-A-M-C-H-R-I-S-T-E-N-S-E-N.com. And you're going to want to visit there as well. And also, if you're listening live or archived, please go ahead and invite someone else to listen with you right now. Use your favorite social media means, the phone, email, uh, reach across the room and say, hey, come join us. Uh, but please do continue to share and uh, and spread this uh, website and these interviews around to your filmmaker friends and fans. Because Movie Beats really designed to be a resource for you. That's why I connect you up with uh, filmmakers and professionals who are making it happen. And so all we ask of you in return is to do two things. One is spread the, the uh, information far and near. Uh, to anyone and everyone, so that they too can benefit from the expertise, the uh, the professional knowledge, the secrets, the insider information that that my guests uh, so freely give away on Rex Sex Movie Beat. And then, secondly, please leave comments at the player before you leave. 
Um, if you're in the chat room, the player the comment window is right below the chat room. Uh, you may have to look for it, but please leave a comment during the show. Tweet during the show. That's a great thing. Live tweets are excellent, uh, whether you're listening live or archived. And uh, and also at iTunes, all of these are available as podcasts at the iTunes store, absolutely free. So go there, and when you do, rate and review them. That helps us out a great deal. Without any further ado, I'm going to bring on Sam, and uh, we're going to begin our show. How are you, Sam? Uh, I'm doing fine, thank you. Uh, you've been busy, I think. Have you been traveling since the last time we spoke? Again? Uh, or? Yeah, I think I took a little vacation trip to Europe, which is really uh, nice. You know, it's always great to dip into other cultures a little bit. And um, I'm about to do uh, some more extensive traveling back to New York to teach for a couple of weeks uh, in August and uh, then Atlanta later in the year and things like that. Well, can you can you tell? Uh, obviously, they can get the information from samchristensen.com, but can you tell us a little bit more about the, the upcoming program in New York and whether or not people can still attend? And if they can't, how they might be able to, uh, in the future, find out information about you and what you're doing and, and, and get to one of your programs, live programs? Well, as you said, most of the uh, information is on, on the website. Um, but we go to New York uh, three or four times a year. We're hosted there by a longtime um, acting uh, uh, teacher who has a studio on West 26th Street, a guy named Terry Schreiber, who's an old friend of mine and, and brought us into New York about six or seven years ago, and we've continued to do that. Um, each and every year, and it's uh, great the, uh, uh, because our, uh, a great many of our, our clients are actors. That difference between the New York actor and the California actor, uh, while subtle, is also profound, and it's fun to deal with uh, each, uh, each uh, group. And uh, we go in and do this long uh, weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday uh, intensive version of, of the process I created. And um, in New York, I believe those are, are full at the moment. However, each time we go to another city, we begin our run by doing a, a free preview class that um, anybody uh, and everybody's invited to. And this time in New York, we're doing that on Wednesday night, uh, August 1st. Um, and that information is also uh, on the website. We'll be in a location there on West 26th Street. And um, and that's just a night where I get to introduce myself to interested people and uh, answer questions, describe a little bit about how the process was was born and why it's there and what this sort of identity exploration has to offer to artists and to others. And uh, so we use that preview class as a way to to meet people and introduce what we do to to the different groups in various places that we go. Awesome. Awesome. So again, that free evening is. Uh, it's, uh, did you say Wednesday, August first? Wednesday, August first. Yeah. And that's in in New York City, Manhattan. In New York, on uh, West Twenty Sixth Street, between Sixth and Seventh, and um, and the the exact time and and the the sign up and all of that. It's available on the website. And that's samchristensen.com. I'm going to spell it again: S A M C H R I S T E N S E N. Dot com. And uh, and so go check that out. It, it it definitely is worth your while, especially if you're in the New York area. Uh, go go uh, attend the free preview and meet up with Sam. That would be an awesome, awesome thing. And boy, if I were there, I certainly would be there. <laughs> well, it's funny. Uh, the the preview. Uh, I, I like to say I, it really is up to others, but I think it's pretty entertaining. And 
uh, it explains what I do and sort of the history of it because it really this uh, the work I do today came out of all my years as a casting person and and what I learned about uh, what actors are up against. And over time, what's interesting is um, I now have a lot of directors and a lot of writers who also come and participate in both the preview and then eventually the, the process because it assists them in working with actors and um, writing for them. And that's really exciting, especially in New York when I've got a group of, of actors, writers, and directors all working together on this uh, identity issue that's being more themselves in their work. So. Um, that's exciting, and this year I have uh, several directors in the two sections I'm doing in New York. Awesome. Well, and, and you and I have discussed so many things that both actors and filmmakers and writers need to consider in uh, not only booking work but in establishing themselves within the uh, film industry and the business that they've chosen to be in as well as uh, to to set a career path. And uh, and so I invite people to, to one, attend your program live uh, for those very reasons and, and much, much, much more uh, because obviously to be able to sit with you and, and talk with you and interact with you in that way is, is, a, is a boon that they, they don't otherwise have uh, except in those circumstances. And and uh, but they get to hear from you here, and they've and, and we've had an awful lot of really valuable uh, golden nugget information coming from Sam. Um, Sam, oh, if you wouldn't mind, could we kind of touch and and I know, because we've gone through some of this before, but let's go through the refiguring the new reality of some of Hollywood's old conventional wisdoms. Um, and one one was typecasting. Good news, you know, good news, not bad. What 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 goes with that? And we'll we'll touch on each of these a little bit, and then I want to get into um, your piece de resistance, the uh, the functional definition of charisma. Well, that's great. And if you don't mind, you're always very kind in asking me. You know, if there's any specific thing that uh, I want to talk about yeah. in a given show, and that agenda sounds great. Although I do want to say something in, to begin. Um, it happens that I was raised in uh, Aurora, Colorado, and uh, oh. you know what happened this weekend, of yeah. course. And um, I just wanted to uh, mention one one item that uh, that I I read during all the coverage, and it had to do with a, a quotation from Christopher Nolan about the event, and and uh, he said something to the effect that uh, he regretted, of course what happened for all the, the obvious reasons that it's regrettable. But, uh, and then he added to that that somehow this incident had taken both the joy and the innocence away from an experience that he had cherished all of his life, sitting in a, a movie theater and escaping into the magic of a movie. And, um, you know, that, of course, struck me because it happened that on that Friday night I, I was, of course, going to see Batman, and um, uh, it, it, you know, it certainly affected my experience sitting in a in a theater. And uh, then later, um, I was participating in a little forum discussion uh, that was really about another topic. But of course, this came up. And um, one of the filmmakers, a young woman, said that she felt challenged by what had happened to reconfigure a screenplay that she was writing. Um, and the comment that she made that I found important and, and touching was that in her screenplay she was forced to find a plot device to drive a certain piece of the story forward 
that wasn't a gun, that previously what had been in her script um, was uh, was about a gun. And uh, she said she had just decided to uh, to rework that story from the beginning and figure out a way to get to that point and beyond that point that didn't involve a weapon. And, you know, obviously weapons are a part of our world and, and we, we write about them, but it really struck me as I was watching the Batman movie about, you know, how much shooting that that movie has in it dramatically okay. and, and visually excitingly, but... Um, I think as storytellers and filmmakers, maybe we all ought to sit and uh, think about, is there an alternative? Are we sometimes taking the easy way out? Is there some other way to tell stories that don't involve gunfights and, and weapons? Uh, can we still remain our, in touch with reality and tell true stories and maybe sometimes use other devices? Because... You know, the more it's on the screen, the more it's in everybody's mind, and sometimes that in, in the wrong hands and a troubled mind leads to unfortunate results. So it's just been on my mind all weekend, and um, and I think that as artists and storytellers, we sort of have to take a look at, at ourselves and, and take our part of the responsibility and figure out how we can dial down... Uh, a little of this uh, violence, especially the gun violence that we've come to depend on in storytelling and figure out if there aren't some alternative ways to to drive stories forward that aren't always about the gun. You know, I, I think that's an excellent, excellent uh, thought, and, uh, you know, I hope that people will embody it. I did a film back in 1978. I don't know if you ever saw it or not, Pam. It was, it was, Sam, it was a short film called Killer's Matinee, and uh, I walk into a movie theater trying to watch Casablanca. People are making noise, and ultimately I stand up and I shoot all the noisemakers and leave the people who are not making noise alive. And it played all over the country, and it created hysteria in the theaters. I mean, people would get kicked out, and they would, you know, people would applaud it or boo it or cheer it. It was very controversial. And uh, and we had a whole series of these planned. Killer goes to Jack in the Box. Killer goes to you know the Laundry. Killer goes to Bank of America. Killer. You know, where, where at that time it was the filmmakers thought that you know the it was a fantasy kind of thing. You know, uh, you know, and we didn't. We stopped, and and there were some tragic things that happened at a San Diego um, McDonald's not long after this movie or around the time this movie came out. Uh, it was again, it was a short used to play around the country and in between films and stuff. And uh, you know, and and it's funny because I said to somebody the other day, I said, you know. Uh, and then Bobcat Goldwaith has come out with a movie recently where the answer seems to be if you're if you're pissed at anybody just go ahead and shoot him. Uh, similar similar to Killer Matinee. And you know I have forgotten about this. I mean I'm aware that I did the the film and you know it was one of my favorite pieces of film because you know I looked at it as. Um, you know, it was an allegory. You don't actually do I mean, it was a metaphor. It was an analogy. You don't actually carry this out. You know, it, it's just, you know, kind of the thought process uh, of of this person. And uh, and yet I was at Batman and came home and turned on the television and saw the news. And uh, and I was shocked. And I and I and I and I went, my God, you know, in all of my experience, I never thought of anyone walking into a movie theater and doing this, even though I had done it in film. I mean, it was it, it always did seem to be this safe kind of haven. But so should 
every place we visit in our day. Yeah. You know, wherever we go. I mean, we we shouldn't have to. So what you say is so, I apologize for going on so long, but it's so apropos to say maybe we can scale back. Maybe we can start focusing on, on better ways of doing things and more positive messages. Well, and I also, you know, this is part of what, what your show is about with filmmakers and writers and people who listen, is this what, this very question about, you know, there is so much storytelling and we're so inundated with media that we, I think, are asked to reconsider all the time what is this relationship between the stories we create and reality and where does that crossover happen? Because what in 1978 you made was utter fantasy. Nobody would think Nobody would, that yeah. actually happening. It was just an expression of our frustration in movie theaters or other places. And yet, right. um, uh, now we have to look at things differently. I guess that's the involvement of our race. Right. We constantly get to relook at the questions uh, that are part of human life in a new light. But certainly this is one of those moments where we get to to go, oh, we've just crossed another line. Now what? Now how do we yeah. think? Now how do we arrange ourselves? And obviously this uh, the, this fellow was a disturbed guy, uh, clearly, and yet, you know, how much disturbance is out there and what's pushing it forward and all these questions that artists, I think, are finally the people who both pose the questions and often answer them in our storytelling and and if anybody has to take responsibility for the movement of the culture, it's it's the artist uh, to help define whatever the next uh, kind of uh, approach to to human life will be. It's it's up to the artist to do it, and that that change in the in the innocence of a of a movie theater is now something that is part of everybody's life. The way that 9/11 changed, you know, the an entire nation's innocence. Right. Um, this this does too. So it's just part of how we evolve. But it's uh, it's certainly compelling, and I, I I felt like I had to say something about it this morning. Yeah, I'm actually I'm actually glad that you did. I mean, this is the first show that I've done since almost the last show with you. I think I did one with director David Winning in between, and and I've been busy, and 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 you know uh, this horrible thing has happened. You know, between times when you know I've been on the air, I've been talking with you, and and you know, and the gentleman shows up in court today, and you know things like that. Uh, no, I mean it should be addressed, you know, and and I think, you know, the idea that uh, movie going may have changed forever. You know, we may now see metal detectors in movie theaters, not just looking. I mean, they were patting down people here, you know, looking for cell phones and recording devices prior to the to the show at some of the theaters but you know obviously you know coming in costume and and things like i mean you know it's just it's amazing what uh, you know an incident can do to change uh a psyche and hopefully you know as you said we we if our psyche changes it changes for the better you know yeah. we we, we you find know, ways some to filmmaker get was saying this weekend it struck me I mean, obviously we have to, uh, the way we're going to study this problem and understand it is artists are going to explore it and guns will be involved. But um, her point that sometimes it's just laziness, that we yep. come to rely on that as a plot device when maybe maybe there's another way to explore 
um, a, a story without that. And and I think it's a, a responsibility we all have to take. I, I, you know, we've talked about this in previous shows. I uh, I think the artist has the greatest responsibility and the greatest privilege. It's it's the stories that artists weave that drive the culture forward and redefine things. And anytime there's a profound um, incident like this, it's going to be the artists that uh, that help redefine the next uh, the next moment and how we how we take in uh, an incident like this and fold it into the culture and figure out what we do next and how we think in the future. And you know, it, it, this time they messed with our life, with our environment, with the place that we find holy. And um, you know, the commentators all will will weigh in. But it, it it happens where we do our work, and uh, right. so we get to look at it. Right, right. Well, it's uh, you know definitely definitely a sad day and uh, a sad aftermath for those families. I was trying to point out to my children. My daughter went to the movie a night or two later. I, I matinee, you know, and and I, I got to I got to admit I was almost. You know, because of copycats and things, I was almost like, you know, I don't know if I want you going to the theater. And, um, you know, try, had to calculate the risk, you know, versus everything. And she wanted to go with friends, and so she went, and obviously without incident, and she didn't go see Batman. She went and saw some Ice Age, actually. And, um, but uh, I was trying to point out to my son and my daughter, I said, well, you think of it if there, if there was a family of four, and then they each had grandparents, now you're at eight, you know, and and those grandparents had children, and let's say they each had two or three or four, you know, and then they have, and I'm going, this exponentially touches families in ways that you can't even begin to imagine how it extends out. And then the friends of those families and the friends of the friends and the people that were known and the people who who suddenly faced a loss as a result of a truly stupid and, and I would say, evil act, um, you know, but but countless thousands of people are actually affected yeah. by something like this. It's 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 you know, I mean, if there's 71 people in the theater that were wounded, all the other people sitting in the theater that weren't wounded but were there, I mean, you, you just exponentially, this thing has a reach that is just unbelievable. Well, yeah, all of those people and how they'll go to the movies or not in the future, that entire audience and all the people in that theater waiting for other movies, and then all the parents like you that had to sit and think. To you, anything could happen. Where are my kids going to be this weekend? Do I want them in a theater? And I know just as a as a um, audience member, the first hour of that movie because I saw it after the news. Uh, wow. The first hour, I just I, it was difficult for me to concentrate on on Batman. Oh, I'm sure. I, I bet. Wow. Well. Let's you know. I hope and pray that nothing like this ever happens again. I mean, and that's maybe one of those kind of empty, hollow statements. But you know, I certainly hope that nothing like this ever happens again. Frankly, anywhere. I mean, not just in the theaters, but I would hope that somehow, somewhere, someday, we we figure out a way to either prevent it, or you know, or or at least uh, make for happier people so they don't feel the need to do this. Yeah, 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 and I mean that we all just take the responsibility to explore. You know, why are we why are we stuck on this plot device, and how much do we have to? You know, all of those questions are are worth exploring. 
I, I think that, I mean, and I think for the purposes of this show, uh, that's a really, I mean, not just the purposes of the show, but, but certainly for the purposes of the show, uh, that's, a, that's a, you know, an extraordinary concept to think about. You know, uh, do we take the easy way out? Are we, you know, just, you know, you know kind of towing a, you know, a, a well-worn path uh, instead of finding other plot devices and other elements and other, you know, to to challenge and stretch ourselves to to come up with other ways of doing things without um, necessarily the same tools or the same gratuitousness. Is there such a word? Um, anyway, I, I do. I, I think it's definitely worthy, uh, very worthy of consideration, and, and for those of us who. Uh, are in this business to consider how else it might be or well, what yeah, else it might I think, be. I think the storytellers can be the leaders. You know, uh, It's right. possible, as always, for the storytellers, the artists, to set the tone for the next wave of thought and change. And you know, it's a responsibility that I, I, I think is one of the privileges of what we do, and I hope people take that responsibility and, and get clever and think of other ways to answer the question besides the gun. Very cool. Very, very cool. Well, I, I appreciate you bringing that up and and, 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 uh, and addressing it. I, I, uh, again, uh, I know you and I and, and, and those listening probably all feel very similarly in that, you know, our, our hearts go out to the people who have experienced loss as a result of this and um, and whose lives are in many ways changed forever for whatever reasons. But uh, just, yeah, you I know, think one of the uh, I watched some of the Sunday political shows and one yeah. of the, the folks on the show, and I can't quite remember who, um, one person said, well, you know, this was the act of uh, a madman. And, uh, and I, I guess we'll find out that that's probably the case. Um, but uh, another person responded to that by saying, yeah, but we create the environment that defines how mad you get and what you can right. do with it. And uh, that's the thing we get to look at. You know, one person's troubled mind is, is one thing, but the world in which that troubled mind acts out and how much weaponry that person can buy in order to... Um, deal with the the troubled mind. It's just that's all stuff that we can comment on and that we can do something about where we maybe cannot uh, help one person's troubled mind, but we can affect the environment that that person is struggling in and try to figure out how to uh, diminish their ability to do damage. So it's uh, it's uh, it, I, I just feel like if artists don't take the responsibility in our storytelling to examine all all the issues around this incident and others, uh, we're the people that have to do it. We, we create the, the stories that guide people's morality and their minds and their, the changes in culture. And I think it's, uh, it's ultimately the reason that, that people become actors or make films or want to direct or want to write. They have something to say to the rest of the world, and, and that is uh, a privilege and a responsibility, I think. Well, you know, if I, I agree. I mean, I, I I agree, and and you know we could I don't know how to say this, but we could go on and talk about about this. I mean, I, there's I mean I um, I've been at gunpoint three or four times in my life, and I've never felt the need to carry a gun or 
to arm my house or to to do anything, and yet I've been at the at the receiving end of of a loaded of loaded weapons, um, and not by pleasant people. And um, you know, it's it's one of those things that I watched the what's his name? I can't even think of it. The Homeland Security Director say, well, you know, it's not just the guns; it's it's that they can you know make bombs with you know household ingredients. And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, you can. I mean, I can build a car from scratch, too, but that takes considerably more effort than going out and buying one. And if I can buy something, you know, and it's readily available and I can use it to do mass damage, then then maybe we ought to think about how accessible some of these things are. Well, yeah, and, I mean, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of um, um, issues and politics and stuff involved in that but i certainly think that it's you know it's up to us to lead the discussion uh well, I agree. that stuff all has to be discussed and it's going to be in a movie or in a play or in a novel or in a poem that we begin to to further explore and suggest the alternatives and begin to say right. what are we going to limit and what are we not and how much are we going to trust people to make their own decisions and you know, all that, that, all of those questions that eventually get legislated, I think, are posed by story and by movies and by art. That's where we begin the exploration, and um, and you know, that's what we're here to talk about. So, and, and that's and that's, that's, that's a fasc- again, it goes back to being a fascinating point in that that it is up to the artist to pick up the mantle, yeah. and. And, you know, if if we're going to see social change, we're going to, it's going to start with the artist and the arts, and and uh, and and getting it out that way. I think I think you're absolutely right on that. And it's interesting. It's one of the the more subtle points because uh, there's a lot of gunfire in Batman, but also one of the subtle plot points that uh, that Christopher Nolan is making. I mean, Batman at one point says, "Can we do this without shooting? You know, can we do this without bullets?" And uh, you know, he sort of dedicates that character to. Uh, what ways can we do this without without bullets? And I, you know, it, it, it's what made that experience. I'm not a big uh, epic sci-fi movie fan. It's just not my particular thing. But I always want to see the best of them. And uh-huh. um, he was dealing with a lot of stuff just besides the pyrotechnics and the age-old question of good and evil. He was posing some other kinds of of ideas in there. And on the one hand, the environment he created was all about urban violence and guns and all that, but he was still asking some other kinds of questions and beginning a, a discussion that I'm not, I, I, I'm sure he didn't plan for it to be as pertinent to the weekend, uh, his opening weekend as it was. But, um, you know, it, it's even in, in his approach as an artist to, to ask that question about uh, do we have to do this with a gun? And uh, that, that, struck me even more powerfully watching the movie than it otherwise might have um, just because of the events surrounding it. Wow, right. Wow. All righty. <laughs> let's move I mean, on. I, let's go for it. Let, yeah. me, uh, let me say that uh, you're listening to Rex Sykes. We'll just take kind of a break right here and go, you're listening to Rex Sykes Movie Beat. The official URL is, is rexsikes.com. That's Rex Sykes. That's uh, dot com, and uh, all of these interviews are recorded live and then available as uh, uh, archived on the uh, interviews blog there at rexx.com, Rexx Movie Beat, and as podcast. So uh, be sure to go back and listen to all of them. There's over 300 and some plus hours of of programming, so you'll want to go back and and hear them. 
uh, each and every one of them, I know. And then Sam has at least uh, four shows that we've done together previously, and you're going to want to go back and listen to each and each show that Sam has done. So you can find it right there at the uh, interviews blog, Rex Likes Movie Beat. Um, the summer schedule is a little bit different. I, I just am kind of uh, playing it very loose because of commitments that I have this summer, and so almost everyone that was booked for the summer has been uh, bumped. I mean, we've we've pushed it back into the fall and and have changed things around. And uh, so stay tuned and uh, and uh, and be aware of that. Uh, they, if you see a show coming up, it'll go through Twitter. It'll go through uh, my Facebook page, uh, you know, Rex Sykes Movie Beat Friends on Facebook or my profile. Uh, but it'll be announced uh, shortly before the show airs. There may be a few more in August. But uh, but uh, help us by spreading the word, by sharing the website. And uh, my guest again today is Sam Christensen. His website is s a m c h r i s t e n s e n dot com. And do yourself a favor and go there and check it out. All right. So we're talking with Sam Christensen. Sam, I had asked you before. Uh, a little while ago about the uh, going back and, re- and revisiting some of these and, and uh, yeah, briefly about typecasting. Good news, not bad. What's what's up with that? Well, you know, one of the things that, that uh, actors are always touchy about is typecasting because um, that idea that I'll be stuck in a certain type of a role, I always play the cop or I always play the lawyer or I always play the battered wife or, you know, um, those things that somehow some attitude and physicality sort of leans the the director's mind um, towards seeing that that actor, um, and actors of course are afraid they'll get trapped there. That um, the full range of their skills won't be explored there, and yet on the other hand, they're happy that a certain casting box is offering them regular opportunity, and. It has always struck me as sort of a a specious argument in this way. On the one hand, I think the issue is less about getting typed in a certain kind of role than it is in getting typed in a certain size role. I think what uh, actors at the base are afraid of is that they will always be playing the three-line person rather than the three-scene person or the whole movie person, and that being caught in that Type range of the smaller roles forever is um, is you know a, a reasonable thing to be apprehensive about. But on the other side of it, when we talk about um, being, uh, w- if we take sides away from the argument and talk about a certain type of person defined by you know job or socioeconomic status or something, and we talk about those kinds of types. I, I always like to point out to, to the actor and also to the person casting the actor who may be a, a little afraid of using the same person again in a similar role, um, that what's really going on here, we have to widen our, our mind a little bit and of the type not so much as a um, uh, as an issue of the, the style of role but begin to think of it more as a frame. And the example I always is that, um, for example, Robert De Niro has been sort of put in this urban loner frame for all of his career um, and from mean streets onward. And yet he has also allowed himself not to ask, how can I break this frame 
and do other things, but how within this urban loner frame can I fill that frame as dramatically and as dynamically as I possibly can? And certainly over this incredible career that he's given us, um, he's done that. He has not had to crack that frame, um, and yet he's shown us so many different varieties of this guy who sort of operates on his own in a more urban world. And even when it came to meet the parents, you know, he still was that guy with the downstairs laboratory, and everybody was feeling like Robert De Niro had broken the frame because he was doing comedy. And I thought to myself, yeah, he's just doing the funny version of what he does so brilliantly. And I think that's what we have to embrace about this idea of, of typecasting, that we are going to be defined a little bit by how we look, what size we are, what coloring we have, you know, whether we seem to be blue collar or white collar, all that kind of stuff. It is going to define some casting things for us. But the issue is to notice what frame we're given and to figure out how many ways and how dynamically we can fill it rather than being driven to break that frame. And I, I, I point it out because I see a lot of actors, especially as they move along and gain a little bit more credibility, they, they feel this need to play something entirely different, like that's going to prove how good they are, rather than to more deeply explore the range of where we're comfortable seeing them in the way that De Niro has done. So it comes up all the time for me uh, in working with actors, this idea if I don't want to be typecast. If I accept this role, I'm going to be, you know, agreeing with this typecasting. And I always, my reaction is, you should be so lucky. You know, let yourself have a defined frame and then start showing us how excitingly you can fill it. Yeah, I mean, I got to, I got to agree with you there. I mean, I, I think as an actor, you know, somebody, if all I ever did was play a cop and made a living at it and could feed my kids and my family, that, uh, you know, that's not the worst thing that could ever happen to me. <laughs> I mean, it's well, definitely, you're definitely. You begin by playing the three-line cop, and by the time you're done, you're playing the whole movie cop. I think that's a, you know, that's a life. Right, don't you? But but it tends to be. I mean, there's a certain. I mean, an act, like for example, the beginning actor who says, "Well, I don't want to get typecast." That's just kind of fallacious. I mean, you know, don't you think? I mean, there's, there may be a level of concern at some point for someone. I mean, I, I like what you say. I don't think. I don't think. I mean, given what you said, that I'd ever worry about being typecast in that regard. But uh, I mean, it seems that sometimes actors create more issues for themselves than they really need to. Oh yeah. By wearing Worrying about things that aren't going to happen. Yeah, there's no, and you know, I think it's just an expression of the larger frustration of how challenging it is to get opportunities. So, you know, they sort of assign all that frustration to various places where it doesn't matter much. It really is uh, an ongoing frustration of getting as many chances to do what you do as you'd like to have, and I, I think that's much that's much more the issue that's important is how do I get remembered, how do I get on the list of, of people that somebody wants to work with, um, you know, how do I make that happen. Which, by the way, I also want to say something about Christopher Nolan, which is uh, this, even though I'm not particularly crazy about the kinds of movies he makes, it's not my thing, but I love the loyalty he has to his uh, company of people, both in the larger parts and the smaller parts. He really is devoted to 
a group of actors that he continues to treat like a, a company, and new people come in and out of it. But it's uh, it's uh, really wonderful to watch him want to explore further with this group of people that he's become comfortable with. Um, and, you know, whether it's in Inception or the Batman movies or wherever, that he he really wants to to further work with these folks that he's uh, grown with. And I think that's great. I love that thing about movie making, that sort of company of players feeling about it. And uh, uh, that, I think, is also a comfort, you know, when for an actor with this challenge and getting opportunities that you can become a part of something that that goes on in the way that Apatow's group keeps, going on and and Nolan's group keeps going on. I enjoy watching that as a film goer. No, that's very cool. That is that is very cool. Um so let me ask this next one. Uh again, one of the conventional wisdoms, the most qualified gets the job. Well, you know, I think I, I again, I think it's a it's a larger question. I certainly think that the quality of our craftsmanship uh gets the actor called back. I mean, that's what creates uh, a group of actors sitting in final consideration, three or four of them that are, uh, and one of them is going to get the part. I think it is, you know, the quality of our work that gets us there. But once we're in that final consideration, I I think there's more to it uh, than the, the best performance gets the job, because at that point, pretty much everybody's going to give a pretty good performance. That's why they're at callbacks. That's where they're in con- final consideration. Ostensibly, any one of the three or four or five people sitting there is castable. I think then the issue, there are two things that I look at at that moment. One of them is what else is it besides the quality uh, of the craftsmanship that is going to create um, the job being gotten? And then I think there's also this matter of not making the job being gotten the goal. Um, naturally, logically, it would appear that getting that job is the goal of a callback. But I think the real goal um, is to go, gee, if I get the job, that would be great and that's a bonus. But my real goal here is to make sure that this director or the producer or the writer, whoever's watching this audition, that I'm on their list forever. I may or may not be tall enough or wide enough or silly enough or whatever for this particular role, but what I want to make sure from this callback is that I go to producers every time, that I am always on their list, that they want to work with me, whether it's this one or the next one or the one after that, I want to know that uh, I have come in here and done the work that's expected that got me to the callback. I put a signature on it so I can distinguish myself from the other worthy actors that are at this callback, and that finally what has happened as a result of the callback is either I get the job or I'm going to get some job with these people because they will always have me on their list. I think when actors go in with that in mind, it takes a little of that pressure off the audition, which I think sometimes hurts those callbacks, all that pressure of I have to get this job. And it also, I think, is a longer view in terms of auditioning toward a career rather than toward single jobs. And ultimately, this is what an actor wants, is a career full of jobs. So all of this pressure on a given callback, a given job, and I have to be better than everybody else, I think is is misplaced. I think that 
thing of I'll do the quality work that got me here, and I know what it is individually that allows me to have my own signature take on this thing, and that will either get me the job or make me permanently remembered. I think then it becomes an audition becomes an investment in a career and not just um, a one shot. I hope I get it kind of. Now I have I love all of that. I think that's I think that makes the most sense. You know, go you know for the long term rather than the short term, and and you know create a career path for yourself. But the goal being to you know always be in the forefront of of people who can hire you minds rather than get the specific job. Now, um, but I'm going to ask you a, a separate, different kind of ask backwards questions. We all know about going into the audition and blowing the audition. And being bad, not being enough, you know, uh, not having done our homework and all that. Gee, have you ever? Because you've cast so many things in your life. Have you ever encountered the actor that's just too good for the part? You know, he might overshadow the lead, or she might overshadow the lead. That that if you put them in the scene, they're going to knock the socks off of people. And you know, I mean, are there ever those counter constraints on things where we we didn't cast him because they're too good for this particular job? You know. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that happens often, but it right. certainly has happened. I've been sitting in an audition where a director has has felt, uh, and it might be that, that the craftsmanship is better than the leading actor. More often it would be that person is just more powerful. They just right. steal, steal more camera. They're going to steal focus from the lead. And then there's also been the issue of somebody is, prettier than the lead or taller than the lead or, you know, we all know the stories about the various leading men who demand that everybody in the cast be no more than a certain height because they don't want people towering over them in a shot. Um, All of those considerations come up and I think it's part of the director's job to uh, think about those things because there is a certain balance that has to happen in storytelling and Naturally, any director wants the best actors that he or she can get, but at the same time, you know, uh, uh, a, a, a movie has to have a flow and a balance, and if you have three standout performances from one-scene p- characters and they overshadow the general flow and quality of, of your ongoing cast from scene to scene, that creates one of those disturbing movies that, that the story is interrupted and uh, so I think certainly a, a smart director is thinking about that in an audition process of not only getting high-quality people, but maintaining some kind of, of through line and balance in, in the whole cast that's made up of all of these uh, parts. And I don't think, you know, that's not something, of course, the actor's thinking about. They're just thinking about giving uh, a good audition and, you know, there's no reason they should be considering the fact that there are other factors going on, but there are. There are definitely a lot of other factors. I mean, I once uh, had uh, a very a woman who's become quite famous since lose a part because she had blue eyes. It was simply no a matter of she had bluer eyes than the leading woman of that particular movie that she was going to be working opposite in three scenes, and the director just said, She's going to make my leading lady look less good. And the young lady lost the role because of that. Now, that director kept that in mind and made sure uh, that that young woman came back and had a, a, a bigger opportunity in the next thing that, 
that he did, and actually that next thing is what led to a big break for her. But um, that was the consideration. She had such beautiful blue eyes, she didn't get the part. It's amazing, huh? Yep. <laughs> so, uh, so the next question that we'd want to touch on is: is what is star quality? Boy, this is you know there there is so much to this one. I mean, I think there are the sort of obvious um, things that we always hear about: the camera loves him, uh, you know, he, they, she has that it factor, all of those kind of simplistic. Um, explanations, but I think they also are um, they they capture something. There's something about the the combination of obvious intelligence of uh, uh, an outstanding look, which may not be beauty at all. It just may mean distinction of physical look. Um, uh, for instance, Jonah Hill is not a beauty, but he has a distinct physicality. Um, mm-hmm. That a person owns that physicality, whether it's great beauty or whether it's some other kind of physical distinction. Um, and that, because I think the camera doesn't just love beauty. The camera loves things that are distinct, that are are alive and present. And so I think that if, one of the things that you know people in Hollywood decry is that it's so much about looks and beauty, and you know the more average-looking people are are complaining about the fact that it limits their chances. I, you know, obviously there's not much we can do to change that, and I think it's much more, much more about ownership than having a certain kind of look. It's owning the one you've got and stepping fully into it and being willing to be as Jonah Hill as you can be. Um, then I think we uh, we create part of that star quality. The other part, I think, is in that thing we were talking about before that can happen in a callback, that signature of your work, um, that, first of all, it's good craftsmanship, bottom line, because that's expected, <clears throat> and that's what, why we're at the callback. But then that next level of what is it that I can allow to flow into this writing that doesn't interrupt the writing but allows me to do it in a way that nobody else can quite do it. And that is really not so much acting uh, and craftsmanship created as it is identity created, where you go, what is it about me that people recognize? What is it they distinguish? What is it they describe when they're describing me to another person what is the thing that that stands out you know if i'm going to introduce you to diane keaton i'm going to say you're going to love diane keaton you know she's got this wacky dizzy kind of thing going on well that means if she's playing the medical director the medical director is going to have a certain kind of you know wacky thing going on and that's what's going to distinguish her she is of course going to do good work as an actress and as a craftsperson, but that signature is going to come from her identity. And I think a lot of times that's what actors um, leave out. They're so busy honoring the character they have to create, which they should do, but they forget that they are also uh, a unique human being approaching that character and that the, uh, the written character deserves 
the humanity that only they can give it to lift it off the page and to distinguish their performance. And I think ultimately that's what we mean when we say star quality, that comfort with one's physicality, that willingness to um, let your identity and the aspects of it uh, fill up a character. Uh, I think those are the things that, uh, that have the potential for star quality. And then there's that, the other, you know, incalculable part, which is the right parts and luck and, you know, the, the, the right number of close-ups that feature your work and all those things that contribute to everybody noticing your star quality. But I think the ability to take advantage of those opportunities has to do with that complete physical acceptance and comfort and that willingness to define the role uh, with aspects of yourself as well as honoring what's written for the character. If a person is willing to do those things, then I think you have that, that the base of what, what the opportunities may create being a star. Wow, it's, I, I like that. I mean, that's very good. And I think it helps people understand um, so much about it and about the process itself, and 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 some of the, some of the contributing factors. And now and now, since we're talking about star quality, what about the notion of charisma? And what is charisma? And and do stars have it or not have it? Or how do you get it if you don't have it? Can you? Well, you know, I think that. Charisma is a potential in, in every human being. That this ability to create um, a focus, you know, it actually comes from the, the, the Greek word meaning light. You know, this, this feeling that this person has a light to them, that they, they draw focus, that we are drawn to them the way that creatures are drawn to light. And... Um, I think it is potential in, in everybody. We certainly have proven over the years of, of filmmaking that it does not necessarily have to do with looks. There have been very, very many charismatic performers who weren't beautiful. You know, Wallace Beery back in the, in the 30s was a charismatic character actor. They wanted him in everything. People couldn't take their eyes off of him. He was the number one box office attraction for about four years running in this country, beating out Clark Gable and, you know, all the other men. Um, and this guy was not a looker, and yet he had this thing. You couldn't take your eyes off of him. And certainly all the way through movie history, we've had people who were gorgeous and people who were not gorgeous, um, who had charisma. Woody Allen, you know, is charismatic, and he's far from being physically gorgeous. Um, and I think that if, first of all, a person says, recognizes that this light that can draw people to me and that can make people want to watch me um, and want me to tell stories, if I think each person says it is potential in me just like it is in everybody else, that's the, the, the first hump to cross, that it doesn't have to do with something I don't have. I think a lot of storytellers go, well, I don't have the necessary beauty or the necessary wit or the necessary height or whatever it may be uh, to, to create charisma. I think that idea has to be let go of, that every person has the potential for it. And then what I believe actually makes it happen 
is a kind of self-acceptance that isn't just the kind we all have to work on in our own heads, you know, to learn to love ourselves. I think everybody does some of that work in life. But the ultimate willingness to be public with it, to actually verbalize your own self-acceptance. Because it is when a person says something that allows them Many years ago, I'll tell you a little story. Many years ago, I was watching The Tonight Show. Johnny Carson was still on. That's how long ago. And um, he had Catherine Deneuve on that particular night. She was promoting a movie called The Hunger. And, um, yeah, it was a good movie. (laughs) Years ago, David Bowie and Susan Sarandon. And um, Johnny Carson was, you know, uh, like those beautiful blonde women, and he was a little less than at his usual ease, and she hates that kind of publicity stuff, so she wasn't very at ease. And they went to break, and you know how sometimes you come back on the talk shows and people have relaxed a little bit. And uh-huh. um, they came back, and clearly they were both a little bit more relaxed, and Carson said, you know, there's been a question I've wanted to ask you ever since I knew you were coming on. Do you mind uh, if I just ask you this thing? And she said, well, no, it's all right. And he said, okay, what's it like to be so beautiful? Uh-huh. And Catherine Deneuve just looked right at him and said, it's wonderful. <laughs> I mean, she just said, look, we all know. It's not like it's a surprise. If I had tried to say, oh, you should see me without the makeup, I'm not so beautiful, Johnny Garfield right. probably would have said, what morning can we arrange that? You know. Right. And if she'd said, oh, I'm not pretty at all, you know, I'm, I'm just an ordinary woman, all the women in the audience would have just hated her. So instead she just said, it's wonderful. And I remember having this physical reaction. I remember just sort of leaning kind of into the television at that moment. And later on, as I did more and more of this work, I realized that that's what we do when somebody is charismatic, when they are public, when they verbalize something that we know is true, that we have sensed before they've said it, and they go ahead and say it. And especially when it's one of those things that's hard to say. This is how beautiful I am, or this is how neurotic I am, or this is how weird I am, or this is how whackball I am, or whatever it is. Um, When people publicly acknowledge their own self-acceptance, we lean forward because the room gets safer. We lean in because we all suddenly get a little safer being ourselves because somebody has led the way. And that is that charismatic gesture, that willingness to go ahead and publicly be who you are. And that reflects back to what I was saying about star quality. That person who goes, I don't happen to have the best body in the world, but I have this kind of chubby, fat, weird body, so great. I'm going to fully accept that. I'm going to let you film it. I'm not going to try to hide it. I'm going to be who I am. And then over here in my performance, I happen to be a little neurotic and nervous and jittery. So my particular medical director of the hospital is a a little nervous, a little jittery, because now I'm Woody Allen playing the medical director. So all of a sudden, that public use and acknowledgement of elements of how we are that everybody is already getting, it's not a surprise, but we're willing to be nakedly public about it, That's what's charismatic. And the reason we value charismatic is because that one person's willingness to to take the heat and generate the light makes us all more safe to be ourselves. And that's why charisma is powerful. 
because it says to every other human being, go ahead, step into your own light when somebody does it. So, you know, we, we extol it in celebrities and movie stars and all of that because we have the opportunity to notice it. It's in front of us so much. But those performers who just do what they do and are who they are um, and are willing to, to take the heat of that much judgment, that is what creates charisma and allows people um, to be drawn to that light because it suggests to each of us that we're safer to step into our own. And, you know, for those people who work in live uh, performance, you can feel it. If you're on stage uh, and um, there's that charismatic moment that the audience um, uh, trusts you and feels you're honest and five or six people lean slightly forward, all of a sudden you feel the wind of it up on stage. You know it's happened. And uh, that, that, I think, is that, that power. Now, that takes some, some self-acceptance internally and then the willingness to that's, I think, what what functionally is how charisma works. Wow, so that's amazing. I, I got a, a, a couple of follow-up questions on that, and that is, okay. and, and I hope you can uh, shed some light so that, uh, so, you know, I mean, Buster Keaton is charismatic, and he never says anything and has a stone face, but people are compelled to watch him. Is, is that uh, a correct assessment? Well, you know, that's all we had then. We didn't hear anybody's voices on the screen, so we weren't missing anything from, from Buster Keaton at that point. And um, the very fact that Buster Keaton would put this little doofus guy in these situations where he was obviously the fool and he was obviously the butt of the joke, and, and he said to people, you know, sure enough, this is who I would be, or at least who this character is, this, this piece of my humanity. Now, on the other side, Buster Keaton was a huge movie star, bigger than we all give him credit for. Um, and so he was a powerful man, but on the other side, you know, he made no secret in his life of how shy he was, how victimized he was, what a loser he thought he was, even though he clearly worked life out a different way, and his willingness to to sort of express that in that character that he created in movies um, and repeated brilliantly, um, said, you know, somehow the losers get through. And so all of us sat there and went, oh, well, good, because I'm a loser some days too, and it's nice to know you get through. And on a storytelling basis, it made us all feel better. But his charisma was in his willingness to fully be that sort of loser butt end of the joke that he let that character be. By the same token, you have someone like Marilyn Monroe, who is, you know, iconically charismatic. And, you know, it was all about this kind of, gee, I step right into stuff, and I, I don't know how I get into this stuff, and gosh, I, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this stuff. And that kind of beautiful foolishness was, uh, and, you know, she played it out in life uh, to unfortunate ends. But right. Still, that willingness to just be that person. In the same way that Angelina Jolie has to do sort of the opposite. She has to fully own that pretty much everybody's going to look at her and everybody's going to tell her she's beautiful. And everybody, you know, she's got to live that life. And of course, we'd all go, gee, how bad could that be? But uh, she'll tell you what the downsides of it are, but she fully steps into it. 
and thus we have to we have to watch it. There, that kind of, you know, I'll use an example from outside show business. When Hillary Clinton finally stepped in fully to the power that we all knew she had and wanted, when she finally crossed that line and began to run for office for herself uh, and began to um, um, not be abashed about how much she wants the, the big jobs, how much she thought she should be president, she should be secretary of state, all of a sudden her popularity went from negative to positive. She became this charismatic uh, person in our culture because she finally said, you're right, I want to run things. I think I'm smarter than my damn husband who's pretty smart, and I don't care what you think. You know. And when she stepped into that, all of a sudden we all went, oh, okay, you know, we'll, we'll go along with that. Um, it, and before that, it had been sort of um, politically unacceptable for her to assert that role. They'd gotten in trouble for it in that first campaign, you know, when Clinton said you get two for the price of one. People were not happy about that. And <laughs> yet we all knew it was true. We knew she had ambition. We knew she had drive. We knew she had all that. And once she was finally in a position to step into that, suddenly she's charismatic and, and popular. It's weird to watch Hillary Clinton have a higher popularity rating than any other Democrat in the world after having the lowest one. Remember when they used to say she was divisive and she was a problem right. and now she's all of it? It's just, it is when we step in to the honesty of who we are publicly so that we acknowledge it publicly, that's when this charismatic light goes off. And sometimes that's hard to do. Sometimes it's politically inappropriate or people are going to think we're egotistical or people are going to think we're too self-deprecating, whatever it may be. But when you step into it, that's when, you know, people let the light shine. So, so I mean, there's wow. This opens up just a whole bunch of questions. Because um, yeah, I find this absolutely fascinating. In the chat room, they said, "Wow, you know, a very insightful, you know, insightful explanation of, of being charismatic," and, and, and they're thanking you for that. And I agree. Um, so, I, I want to try to tease some things out for the listeners in in that. Um, uh, you know, Kathy Bates did the the topless scene and the hot tub thing. I can't think of it. We all know that she's a great actress and everything. Oh. Is that is that part of? And everybody then made fun of her. Or Dennis Franz, who I would never, ever probably have used the word charismatic to describe him as an actor. Uh, and and no insult to the gentleman. He's, he's you know the same thing with Ricky Jay. I, you know, Ricky Jay, I don't think of as somebody who to me embodies charismatic. And uh, and yet their presence on the screen, and you know, uh, they're there. You know, they work. Um, but you know, Dennis Rand had to bear his ass in NYPD Blue and and stuff like this. I mean, is there? Is, and I think he got a lot of flack. But I think a lot of people also went. You know, here's this, this older guy who's who's shown his ass on TV. And and I think at the same time he got a lot of respect for that. Uh, I guess I guess what I'm I'm trying to ask is. Uh, when it comes to letting it all hang out, I mean, I, I can look at the neighbor next door who's, you know, fat. I mean, and, and this is fictitious. I don't have a neighbor like this, just so you know. Uh, um, but fat, you know, beer belly, burping, farting, you know, somebody like, I don't know, I can't think of the character on television, you know, scratching their butt. You know, they're just completely at home in their slavishness. Uh, is that is you know they're honest they they don't make any bones about it. is that an aspect of charismatic i mean is that 
the kind of thing you go, well, I mean, I mean, I'm I'm compelled to look at this person because they are authentic, even if it's not something we we ourselves enjoy. Does that does that make sense? Well, let me uh, let me say this. I think that that kind of honesty and authenticity is um, is a part of it. I don't think it's the whole um, the whole charismatic. Um, uh, the whole process, but okay. I think it's essential. That willingness to go ahead and let people see it, whatever it may be, um, and sometimes it has to, have to do with nudity, but, I mean, generally it just has to do with – I'll give you an example. Lisa Kudrow now has a show uh, uh-huh. called Web Therapy, and mm-hmm. she plays um, the most unpleasant woman – you can possibly imagine. I mean, just ambition and doesn't care about anybody else. I mean, it's just... And there's something so compelling about this performance. There's something about the show that you have to really love it because it's a little like in Skype windows and uh, it, it lacks a little action for my taste. But when you watch this woman's bravery and willingness to be honest to this character, it's really compelling. However, I'm not, I don't know that it's charismatic. I don't know that it is so much an aspect that I already suspected or felt about Lisa Kudrow that she's underlining um, that it makes it that kind of light that makes me feel safer about being more myself. Um, but that kind of, on the other hand, I'll give you another example from television. In Nurse Jackie, um, that woman whose name is escaping me at the moment, uh, Falco, Edie Falco, um, she's made it pretty clear in all the way from you know the beginnings in in uh, in um, the show that made her a star for ten years, all the way from that show onward, she's made it pretty clear that she is a tough. New Jersey woman, she doesn't brook any crap. She, you know, will walk off the set if you piss her off. She doesn't take in. And in Nurse Jackie, she has capitalized on that role along with this woman's doubts and inadequacies. And there is something charismatic about that performance. I'm not sure if the show's perfect, you know, uh, although I watch it. And yet, somehow in that performance, she lets us know this is pretty much what you'd get out of the nurse's uniform, too. I can be this rancorous and this difficult and this insecure and this sweet. This is pretty much who I am, only a nurse. And that performance is, is, creates that show being so watchable. It, is, well, it is this authenticity is essential, and then that willingness to, to call it out and say, Yep, this is who I am, and I'll take the judgment because I'm I'm more willing to let you see it than to hide it. And I think, you know, every one of us have stuff that we tuck in that we prefer people didn't see. And when we get up on stage or in front of a camera, that's the stuff we're probably going to want to tuck in and hide there. And yet if we make that choice to... Um, not hide it, 
then we have this effect of letting everybody else know they're safer to not hide their stuff too. And I think that's the charismatic effect. Now, I'm going to clarify. Well, by the way, in this particular episode, we probably have uh, 13 or 14 minutes left. So um, by the conclusion of this program, I would certainly be willing to continue and go to another show with you uh, on this topic in your books and everything else, just so that you know, I know that the listeners would be willing to as well. So, uh, you know, at the at, when we, we as we draw to a close, you can let me know if that's something you're willing to do as well. Um, the question that I have, because this is just absolutely fascinating, is, is is the caveat to this side of it, because I because I want to make sure that 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 I might have heard something that somebody else would have heard in in that explanation and then I may embody it in a way that is is very useful for me or in a way that's not so useful. I mean, maybe I'm a hothead and I go, well, that's who I am. So I show up on the set and I'm just this kind of hothead. Um, uh, that might shoot myself in the foot. You, you, does, you know, does that make, does that make it, you know, Edie Falco may be able to get away with certain things that, that, that I couldn't or somebody else could get away with is is that a fair assessment or is that or am you I know, misunderstanding? I, I am I am talking about the difference between what we bring to storytelling and to art and to characterization may or may Versus. not be what's appropriate on the set. I'm sure okay. and I I know for a fact that uh on on the set Edie Falco is completely professional and kind and uh you know that her coworkers love working with her. And I think we all know that there are aspects of ourselves that are um, that deserve some massage in certain social situations. And I think we all do that appropriately because there are, you know, ways to be with our friends and ways to be with our coworkers. And if we're smart, we know how to tone up and tone down the aspects of ourselves that are socially appropriate or inappropriate, inappropriate as the case may be. But I think in performance. And in storytelling, this is where that charismatic thing is operational. Um, the things that I might not do, trying to be professional and a good coworker on the set, might I might step into a scene and absolutely do them, um, because in the scene, that thing that I I uh, adjust so that I am more socially appropriate, um, in the scene I may choose not to adjust that. My character may not be able to make that appropriate adjustment. My character may be more that. I certainly think that Woody Allen turns up that neurosis and that worry and that fidgety in performance um, because it suits him. It probably doesn't suit him as much when he's actually directing and being the helmsman of the whole set. He probably has to adjust that a little bit. Um, But that willingness when the focus is on you and you're the storyteller to be fully honest, um, really authentic, which means that nothing is not useful. Nothing is, is uh, off, the, off the list of usability. I think that is when we sense uh, that feeling that bleeds out, that shines out from the charismatic person. Because ultimately, it isn't just that we're compelled to watch. 
the thing that I've explored is why are we compelled to watch? What is it that makes the charismatic person so watchable? There must be an effect here. There must be a residual. And I think that residual is the fact that somebody else's willingness to be publicly who they are, storytelling function, says to us, you're safe too. Of course you're going to make appropriate social adjustments, but ultimately you're safe to be who you were made to be. And I think that that's that residual effect that charisma has on the watcher, the observer, is that it says, you know, maybe you don't have to tuck in as much as you think you do. Maybe you're overcompensating your adjustments. Maybe um, you, there are situations in which you can be fully authentic. Uh, and I think the permission uh, is what is ultimately the takeaway from somebody's charisma. And it's the reason we're attracted to those people. That, that willingness to be looked at for who they are says to the person watching it, wow, it, it can be done. It's a risk, but you don't die. You survive it. And ultimately, you're more authentic because of it. Uh, I, I think that's a value. I think that's what, what charisma does for us, besides attract us, is it also says we can all step up more to who, we're, who we are, who we are stamped to be, we can step up to that. And um, I, I, I think that's, the, I think that's the, that residual value we take from it. Well, how do, how do, how do actors and storytellers uh, begin to uh, develop charisma or uh, get the roadblocks out of their way from having charisma? I mean, is, are there... Uh, and again, we're going to run out of time on this, probably. But let me give you these quick steps because this is a big part of what I do in in the in the process that that we've talked about. There there are two steps. First of all, we have to fully recognize what our identity is, our public identity, and that takes a little work because there's an inside factor, that interior perception we each have of ourselves, and there's also an exterior perception. Those aren't always exactly the same. So those both have to be observed, taken into account, and we have to come to sort of a, of a public identity. Uh, this, is, this is who I am in the world and what is seen of me and recognized both by me and others. And that's part of what I do in, in my work. And then step two is we have to let go, in terms of storytelling, we have, in art, we have to let go of the syndrome of approval and disapproval that governs so much of the rest of our lives. It governs the rest of our lives appropriately. You know, there are certain things we should do and not do when driving. There are certain things we should do and not do in theaters, you know, all of that. But in terms of art, we have to let go of whether it is approved of or disapproved of uh, if we're going to be charismatic. We have to have a real sense of what our, the totality of our identity is, both publicly and personally, put those together, and then we have to go, I don't care, I can't worry about whether it's approved of or not. I can only worry about whether I'm honestly letting it be seen. And then I think we have that potential to take what is the charismatic seed that's in each of us and bring it up to its full use to make other people more charismatic in themselves. Now, this is, this is where somebody with your expertise 
and and your experience and the years of experience that you've had in 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 recognizing and discovering talent in in helping people start their careers and launch their careers both as a casting director and as you know a manager and all the different you know variety of aspects in which you've worked in show business so you know when you do your workshops or somebody comes to you you're one of the things to do just so that we understand is to is to reconcile the public image with who they are. I mean, in other words, so that, or who they are with their public image. You know that way that sometimes somebody will say, oh, I love you because you're like this. And you'll go, really? You think I'm like that? People will say things to you that you're, really, I don't think that about myself, but it's interesting that you do. We all realize that there is a little bit of a difference between how we perceive ourselves from the interior and what other people get on the exterior. So that interior and exterior need to be put together. Those two things become the public identity. Now, we still have our interior, of course. There is the exterior. But in terms of what an actor takes a picture of, who it is that's auditioning, that is a public identity. It's their interior coupled with what's going on in the exterior. So in my process, that's what I do. I I bring those two things together. I help actors, others find out what's going on outside them, unify it with what's going on inside them. So they come to this, here's the public person I'm working with. And then I work on these issues of letting go of the approval factor and all that. But that issue of, of uniting the public, the outside, with the private, the interior, putting those two identities together to create this person that is the storyteller because both sides are operational simultaneously, um, that's, that's kind of why I have a job is that's what the process helps people do. But but it's such an incredible thing. I had a, a casting director friend of mine. We sat down at lunch, and he, he looked at some headshots, and he said, no one's ever captured who you are. You know, none of these shots look at all like who you are. Here's what I want you to do. This is this is how I want you to take your photo. This is what I want you to do. And I went out, and I said, okay, and um, uh, ended up getting the headshots and went back with him, and he said, finally, finally, this is right. And, and immediately the difference between the response in in auditions and booking and things you know now i would never i personally would never have thought to do what he did and i and i said to him you know i said and and he was very flattering but he he said we need good fat guys and i said wait a second do you do you understand what you just said to me and he goes what i said you called me a fat guy he goes own it he goes we need good fat guys and i said yeah but you called me a fat guy and he goes you're a fat guy. We need good fat guys. So sell your, put yourself out there that way. Stop trying to be a thin guy when you're not a thin. You know, I mean, and, and it was all stuff that I, I guess I should know but didn't know. So the value, the benefit. I mean, I hope this is going to to the point that I want to make is your expertise, your eye, your know-how, your knowledge to be able to look at people because of your years of experience that have done this thou- countless thousands of times, is the very thing that most all of us desperately need well it's important and you're really lucky to have a friend that could give you you know the unjaundiced outside but what's really important is that he allowed you to pull it into the inside because you know you're still a thin guy living in a slightly larger body okay everybody wants to be the thin guy so you got to go okay the real identity here is this combination of who rex is inside and always has been plus 
this outside identity. Okay, let myself take a picture. It isn't as if the inside Rex disappeared in those pictures. It's that right. they acknowledge both the outside and let you still be who you are. You can look in that picture and go, yeah, that's me. I had to fold fat into it. But now we've got a public identity. It allows me to acknowledge this interior that I have, which is where your work's going to come from. Can't make that go away. We don't want to make that go away. But it also uh, uh, um, acknowledges one piece of that outside identity, which in this case was fat. I'm hopeful that other pieces of your outside identity got acknowledged in those photos too. And then what happens is we have a photo of the person that's going to get cast. The outside has been acknowledged, at least that fat element, probably other elements of the outside, and your sure. inside is there too. All of a sudden, we've got a whole identity. Um, that thing of trying to convince people of who we are, we're thin when we're not, for example, or just giving in to who they are. Okay, now I'm the fat guy. All the things I know about myself disappear. No, all that stuff interior to you that you've always been is still an element. You aren't just what they think, but you've acknowledged what they see. And that's what I work on with people, too. So I don't, it isn't, I mean, my awareness that the problem has to be solved is based on my experience. But what I give to people isn't my view. It's how to find out what that outside is, how to put it together with your inside, and come up with this public identity that you're going to take pictures of, that you're comfortable being, and that acknowledges the outside. So what I try to do is give people a process so that they can do for themselves what your friend's contribution helped you do for yourself, which was get to the public reality of, of Rex in a photograph. And that's what I want everybody to be able to do because everybody has those photos that aren't who they are. You know, That was the right. initial reason that I started this. And it just bleeds out to so many things because it turns into what we bring to a performance. It turns into how we do our website. It turns into what happens in an interview and an audition, all that stuff, because we not only want your good work, we want the authenticity of who you are fully, which has to also encompass the outside perception. Wow. Wow. You know, Sam, i got to say this. We are out of time, and I'm going to implore you. I'm going to beg you to come back in the fall. Um, Rex, you know, I love talking to you. I'm happy <laughs> to come back, and uh, we'll talk about that. Let me know when, and I enjoy talking to these folks on the radio who I don't know, but I hope that uh, I offer them something useful. Well, you do. You do. You offer them so much value, and, and, and uh, I appreciate it so much. And I'd like to pick up kind of like right where we are, if that's right with you. But also, you have two books that are writing. One that's coming, one one that's run, and the other one that you're working on. And uh, and I know we've touched on on uh, each of those in in prior interviews. But uh, really, like September sometime, maybe if you could come back and uh, 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 and catch us up with what you're doing, and and we can continue this conversation. I would I would certainly love it. And so I know that my listeners will too. Me too. Sam, you have been awesome. Any any final? I don't want to just say goodbye and and not let you uh, have a final word. So, um, I just want to harken back to how we began and and then what we said after. I think that artists, storytellers have uh, the the cultural responsibility to clarify and purify our our culture and and move us forward. And it is an awesome responsibility and an enormous privilege and. I know your listeners all feel that. It's what brought them to this work, and I, I just want to encourage that because I think it's up to us. I think it's up to the artists to, to make uh, a better world 
and uh, go do it. Awesome. Well, Sam, that is very, very cool. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of the time. Have a good time in New York. Again, it's the 21st Wednesday in Manhattan. Go to samchristensen.com. That's S-A-M-C-H-R-I-S-T-E-N-S-E-N.com. For details, Sam has a free evening in Manhattan, uh, and he's doing a workshop there that I, you said may be sold out, but you've got a free evening that people can check into. So uh, and that and, if your listeners come to that preview, please uh, say hello. I'd love to meet some of the folks I'm talking to. Fantastic. All right, Sam, thank you again so much. Have a great day. I'll call you just a couple minutes just to debrief and then uh, and, and let you go on your way. Thank you so much. All right, great. Thank you. Thank you. All right, fascinating guest, Mr. Sam Christensen. I'm so glad that he was here. Thank you for listening. Everybody who's listening, please, uh, live or archive, take a moment, leave comments at the player window. Sometimes the player has to close down before you actually see the comment window, but uh, if you're at the player, it, believe me, trust me, it is absolutely there. There's a, And then also rate and review the podcast. And uh, i got to say, uh, everybody have a fabulous day. Make your movies, complete your projects. We've got a lot more guests coming up. Stay tuned. Uh, schedule's different. Uh, go follow Sam on his, uh, or to his website. Uh, follow me on Rex Sykes uh, Movie BT on Twitter, Rex Sykes Movie B on Twitter. Join at Rex Sykes Movie Beat on uh, Facebook and on YouTube, Rex Sykes Movie Beat. And uh, check out Serum the Movie on Facebook. Please do that. That's the movie I'm directing right now. And uh, we'll see you next time. Until we meet the next time, that is a wrap. <laughs>